during the announcements, it, it became clear that there's one other ministry that we need to establish. So if you all are interested, see me after church. We're going to have a prayer for Parallel Parker's ministry. Meet me right here. So it is, it is clear that we need that to be a gift of the Spirit. So we are going to inquire before the Lord and see a parallel parking. No, so here's the thing about announcements like that, right? So we laugh at them. They silly, but they're also serious, right? So we don't take time out on a Sunday morning to give announcements that don't matter or they're not serious. So Ray was cool. He's laid back. Ray got the deepest voice in the country. So he doesn't. He put the mic down. And we all laughed and we laughed at the cars and we're joking and that's wonderful. But take the announcement seriously. It's affecting our ability to be able to steward what we have. And then some people may not be able to come in because there's no place for them to park. And if it's just a matter of inching over just a little bit, you know, get out, check your line, make sure you're straight. That's a good thing. All right. So let's, let's be sensitive to that. And also the prayer for parallel parking. That's real. That is not a joke either. Huh? Because I'm a pastor. I'm, I, get, I get that. I'm all right. Don't touch the Lord's anointing. You better not play around. You better not play around here. You better not play. Don't do it. But I got to step my game up too. Good, all of us. It's for all of us. All right. Let's open to Romans, Romans chapter 8. I've been, I've been waiting for a long time to get to this, to this passage. This is probably, this is one of the most familiar passages in all the Bible by everyone. So both Christian and non-Christian alike. This is one of clearly, clearly, verse 28 in particular. We're looking at three verses this morning. We're going to do Romans 8, 28 through 8, 30. But Romans 8, 28 is one of the most familiar passages, one of the most quoted passages by both Christian and non-Christian. In fact, I think it's the third most popular passage in the Bible. There's only two other passages that people probably know and quote more than Romans 8, 28, and it's Matthew 7, Judge ye not. People quote that all, they always use the King James, like it means more than King James. <laughs> King James, the judge ye not. Only God can judge me. He absolutely will. So they quote that one and then John 3.16. All right, those are one, two, and then this one, I believe, is number three. The most quoted passage in the Bible. But it's also one of the most misunderstood passages. And by misunderstood, it's also misapplied. Right? It's it's one of them. It's one of them. And it's, and it's you know, it's it's easy to take scripture out of context. It's easy to pull something out and make it a promise. I mean, a lot of people struggle with promises in the Old Testament and how do I process those? If, you know, books have been written, you know, about certain things. Pray this way, the prayer of Jabez. And listen, there's a bunch of things that are written and you think, okay, how do I know what's for me and what's for that and what's for Israel in the Old Testament and what's in the New Testament? And so it's easy to take passages out of context, but it's also dangerous. It can be very dangerous to do so. And I think this particular passage has created a cultural Christianity. 
a cultural Christianity, which I'll explain a little bit later, but, but by, by, by saying that, what I mean is it's created a Christianity where culture, where people who are not necessarily committed to Christ believe that God has saying things that are about them outside of Christ. You've heard me say before, see, everybody wants the kingdom, but they don't want Christ. Everyone wants reconciliation, but not with the cross. This is the culture. Everything's about not offending other people. Everything's about equality. Everything's about this. Don't discriminate. Everything's about this. It's about that. Those all seem like good things. Until you realize they have nothing to do with true reconciliation. They have nothing to do with that reality. So a verse like this is one of the most quoted. It's one of the most misunderstood. But it's also one of the most theological passages in the scripture. People because they misunderstand it and they misquote it, they downplay the theology that is in it. There is theology in this passage that is deep. And if for some, maybe even offensive. So today, I just, I was, look, when we said we were going to do Romans, when we decided four or five years ago we were going to do Romans, <laughs> Romans has officially become the red light, green light series. But when we decided we were going to do it, I was like, man, I can't wait to get to Romans 8.28. So I hope by the grace of God that I'm able to, because there's a lot, this, you know how you have a pet peeve? There's a certain things that bother me. There's certain things that bother me about the way this passage has been quoted, misunderstood, and the theology downplayed. In it. So this is what we're going to do today. To go through this passage, we're going to answer three questions. The first question is this. Why is this one of the most quoted passages? Second question. How is this passage misunderstood? Third question. What makes this one of the most theological passages in Scripture? First question. Why is this one of the most quoted? Second question. How is this passage misunderstood? Third question. What makes this one of the most theological passages? Right? Let's read, pray, and then zoom in. Beginning in verse 28, and I quote from the CSB translation, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Father, your word is clear that the, sometimes the gospel message the truths of the Bible are offensive. We're not supposed to be offensive. But the truth is offensive. Then passages like this, when we take them for what they actually mean, are a wonderful reality, but could also be a stumbling block, a challenge for people. Lord, I pray that with what you've given me would not only be accurate, but would be helpful. For I know that if your spirit does not do the work in the hearts of those who are listening, that I am but 
at best, Charlie Brown's teaching, just talking without any impact. But I pray for impact, not because I'm preaching, but because there's truths here that we need. And I pray that where I need to omit things, let me omit them. And where I need to emphasize that, I'm, that I haven't planned on, help me to park there. This is about you and your glory, and us and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Why is this one of the most quoted passages? Why? Well, I'm talking about for people who are not Christian, people who are non-believers. We use this passage a lot. Why is this one of the most quoted passages? And here's why. Because people always stop at the word good. What happens? People who are non-Christian often stop at the word good. We know all things work together for the good. Period. Period. They stop at the word good. And it creates, as I said a few moments ago, a cultural Christianity where there's this this view of God that that somehow God is is looking out for them despite him saying they need to know him. Or there's this sense where 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 even in the most mundane things, things that would naturally occur, they attribute to God when the things are agreed. But when they're not, they distance themselves from God. If it's not good, they distance themselves. So you may be at your job and your coworker might be like, man, I got you got my tax check. God, all things work together for the good. <laughs> and there's this sense where, okay, when I determine that it's good, all things work together for the good. Man, what a good God. God is good all the time. Is he really good? Like if even people like us who do believe in God and we go through certain trials and, and tribulations and do, we sometimes question if God is good. There's a, a cultural Christianity that, that names God when it's good and blames God when it's not. So they quote this passage, they stop it. All things work together for the good. Because people make the passage about God loving them. But they forget it's talking to people who love God. Sure, yes. Scripture tells us, James tells us, that all good things come from heaven. So I'm glad your tax check came. But what's you going to do with it? South Carolina people be like, all things work together for the good. I'm going to the club tonight. <laughs> okay, the Lord is there with you. <laughs> it's it's if people stop, unbelievers stop at the word good, but there's more than that. That's one reason. The second reason why this is one of the most quoted passages because believers, believers stop at verse twenty-eight. Believers stop at verse 28. So they can get, we know that all things work.
work together for the good of those who love God. Some of them might even have a call according to his purpose. But they stop right there and create a Christianity that's not necessarily cultural, but that's preferential. Or it's a Christianity of desires. My desires are going to be answered by God. And so God works together for the goodness about my love for him. And so I love God and he's going to do all this stuff for me for my good. And so all of a sudden now let me have all these things in my life that are good. And then if they don't work out, it's A lot of believers stop at verse 28 and ignore verse 29. So even we, we take it out of context. And what it does, which I alluded to the third reason, is because we use it to justify personal desires as guarantees. Listen, a lot of us want things that are good. I want people to be saved. I want things to change in culture. I would love it if abortion was done. Not even outlawed, just people said we ain't going. I would love it if the church, you know, the church, some of the church in, in America, if we decided, you know what? James talked about orphans and widows. That's a, it's a true religion is there. Do you know if the whole church decided we're going to adopt all the kids that are in orphanages? We clear that out. We clear it out. There's thousands and thousands of kids growing up in foster kids growing up in foster homes. We clear it out. We clear it out. I would love for those things to go. Those are all good things to me. I would love for my kids to grow up and be saved and honor the Lord until their last breath. I would love these are all good things in all of us. You can make a list of all good things. It would be good things. But the problem with those good things, while they're good things, is that God never promises those good things are going to come to pass. And so while it's not bad to, de to desire them, it's bad to say God is going to give them to me because of Romans 8, 28. And that becomes dangerous. Because what it does for us is we get disappointed. We get disappointed to God. We have success in ministry. And all of a sudden it's gone. Or it becomes harder. We have good relationships with people, we thought. And all of a sudden those people aren't there when we need them. So wait a minute. Romans 8 28 says all things are together for the good for those who love God. Here's the question. Who defines good? Who defines good? If it is us, we will be challenged. Who defines good to you? It is easy for both non-Christian and Christian to justify personal desires as guaranteed to get because of Romans 8 28. Depending on where you stop in the verse. 
and it has become extravagant. Many other promises can be true. This is one of the most quoted passages because unbelievers stop at love. They stop at good. Christians stop at verse 28. Because 29 interprets what good is. Much more than 28. Second major question that we're going to answer is how is this passage misunderstood? How is this passage misunderstood? Well, first of all, verse 28 is seen as a proverb instead of a promise. It's a proverb. God works together things for the good for those who love God. That's not a proverb. It's a promise. It's a promise. Look at it again. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Now Paul is writing this, and there's a context, but we'll get to this in a second. Don't forget what's in the background. But he said, we know. Not I know. We know. So it's a Christian reality to know this. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. This is a promise. This is a promise that we're given from God. It's not a proverb. This is misunderstood. I have to see this as something, a, a proverb is a pithy wisdom statement of something that's true. A lot of proverbs actually don't require faith as much. They just tell you the truth. A man, a man who gets full venture his anger is a fool. I don't have to have faith in that. We can see that. Many of us have lost our tempers and we just realize it's fool. Offended our families, children, who else? But this is a promise because it says things about you and I that are not our experience. So whenever you read things where God is talking about your identity that's not your experience, it's a promise that requires faith. It's true, but it's not true by your experience. How many of you know what justified feels like? Who feels justified? Maybe you feel a little good because we were getting it in during worship. How many of you feel justified? Are you glorified yet? Who has a glorified body yet? Let me see it. <laughs> there may be people who glorify their body. It's a promise. Another reason why this passage is misquoted is because we forget what's in the background. See, people interpret it like this. 
all good things work together for the good of those who love God. But what's in the background of this passage? The background is suffering and groaning. That's in the background. Those are the verses that Paul's jumping to. That's in the background is suffering. If we suffer with him, what's that, verse 22? If indeed we suffer with him. And then you get to 26 and 27, that we groan. There are things that just, ah, that just disappoint us. I was at my son's basketball game on Sunday. And I was videotaping it so we could watch it later and talk about it. And the dad beside me, we've become friends. And his son is actually the best on the team right now. <laughs> and so I was filming and he said, hey, you heard about TMZ? And I was like, nah. And he said, Kobe Bryant died. And I was like, nah, TMZ is tripping. And he said, nah, I think it's true. So I was like, I, I was like, yeah, all right, well, I'm going to keep filming the game. I'm watching. And then it was a timeout or something. So I said, let me check. And I Google, I didn't see anything. And I said, let me put Kobe Bryant there and all this stuff. And it was the first time, and maybe because I'm at my son's game, basketball game. And I want, and I have aspirations for him. And maybe it's because this man was one of the greatest basketball players. And then maybe it was finding out that his daughter, who's my son's, my oldest son's pretty much at her at his age, that they were going to her basketball game and when she was the coach, all of that just hit me. And it was the first time that I could honestly say that I was greatly affected by a celebrity that I've never met in my life, God. And you know what happened in my soul? Oh. And I knew that the country, the, 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 the world would mourn to some degree. But there was a groan. So I think, man, what if he didn't know the Lord? And he did all that stuff and it meant nothing. It's grown. And everyone who was in the stands as the news trickled out, we all felt it. It was like everyone was just shocked. was a groan. This passage in Romans 8.28 is coming as a result of the groan that we experience. The culture told us the world is groaning, waiting to be restored because of sin. We are groaning because we're sin. The Holy Spirit within us is so deep that God has the Spirit in us interceding on our behalf and groaning in ways that we don't even understand because it's not in words that are intelligible. There's just a deep sadness about the world that we live in and sometimes we don't even know what to articulate or what to say, but we just feel. So this passage isn't saying all the good things that come for are, are there for the good. He's, he's saying it to encourage that when we're groaning and we're suffering with Jesus, that all that stuff that we're going through all those experiences, all the sadness and all of it, everything that we experience is God is using for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So the context of this passage is not just my tax check came in. The context is that I'm suffering and I'm groaning and waiting till I'm done with this life. And so God says, listen, I'm using all the things that, that trouble you, that cause 
was called according to my purpose. That's the context of this passage. This is a, this is to encourage you, like, hey, what you born here? God has a purpose for you. And he said all things. Of course that means good, but the context is growing and suffering. And we don't always understand that. Let me prove it to you. Lock your keys in your car. When you get out, you like, oh. You know how you get it just as you close the door? Like you just, for one second, you, you think everything's good. And just as that you see that door get right snapped. Like, oh. <laughs> then you look in and you're like, man, I'm going to just dang them, right? You're saying like, hey. <laughs> you forgot me. It's gonna get a coat hanger and just flip it up. You don't watch too many movies. And then you realize, nah. You got triple A? No, groans. <laughs> All the time you can talk about getting triple A. Now, you triple mad. Because now you gotta bust the window. You gotta pay somebody to bust the window or hope that somebody knows how to get into the car. Then you come to me, hey Kirk, you know how to get in the car? What are you trying to say? <laughs>
the silence that is the action that holds on nature up. Behind the curtains is somehow God is helping us to be more like Him. This is why James 1 2 says, Count it all joy when you experience trials of various kinds. Not because you want trials. I don't know anybody saying, Oh Lord, please let me pray for you. I just want to suffer, Father, and I just pray. Listen, you don't got to ask for that because it's going to happen. And if you pray for that, don't ever pray for me. Listen. But it says that because, James says, Because you're learning to persevere. You know, if, this, if every relationship in this, in this world is just fantastic, if everything is just sweet, then what would you need God for? And why would you want to go be with Him? Because everything here is great. This is why your marriage has some suffering in it. There's conflict. Because of that relationship, or this conflict between the children and the spouse, if that doesn't exist at some point, then you idolize and love them more than God. This is why we struggle, we suffer. Because we're growing, we're, we're supposed to be waiting to be redeemed and to be with the Lord. This passage explains to us whatever the situation, people who love God know why it's happening. It doesn't mean we like that it's happening. It doesn't mean we don't want it to stop. It just means we understand in some way, shape, or form that I am being conformed to his image. Yesterday in biblical counseling, we were talking and, and, and we were talking about suffering. We were talking about this very topic. And someone was talking about we were talking about we'll read this book called Prescriptions and Descriptions. And we were talking through it. And there's this, I forgot the comment, the comment, but somehow depression kind of came up. We were talking about like people, the desire when you experience depression. I'm not talking about you just have a bad day. I'm talking about when it's when it's a lot of bad days. Some people just attribute things to themselves that you ain't really depressed. But it's some sometimes it's just like, man, this is not doing anything. We were talking about taking drugs to alleviate it. And there's a sense that I was and I said, you know, it's interesting because what we do is we tend to try to manage and minimize our suffering. And, and I said, but the, the goal isn't necessarily how not to be depressed. The goal is how do I glorify God as a person that's depressed? Because you don't know how long it's going to be there. Let me talk about the difference between joy and happiness. You can still have joy and depression because joy is a positive state of mind despite the circumstances. Happiness is a positive response to a circumstance. When the Redskins score a touchdown, yeah, we at the games, we hugging people, we don't know breath sticking, we don't care, drunk. Hey, we on the same team, we singing a fight song. But that happiness goes away as soon as the interception fumbles. I hate this team. <laughs> goes away. There's no joy. I'm like, I don't enjoy the skins. If I did, I'd be miserable. <laughs> I'm trying to laugh at all my teams are terrible too. Today is two teams in there. Most of them ain't joy. But joy is, hey, listen, despite the circumstances, I still believe you're good. And I still trust you. That's joy. You're still good. Despite the 
in harm and the suffering. And, 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 and based on this passage, it is fundamentally biblical, it's fundamentally Christian for us to see, to know that these things are working out for our good. He says, for we know there's a responsibility among Christians to know that all the suffering and the groaning from the loss of key to the loss of life is somehow working together for our good. And so we resist the temptation to despair long term. To be conformed to his image is a serious reality. It's a serious responsibility. And here's why. Because the fourth reason why this passage is misunderstood. So the first was that people think it's a problem instead of a promise. The second is we take it out of context and make it about good for good instead of in the context of suffering and growing. The third is being conformed to his image is something that people don't really want to grasp or, or being conformed to his image is sort of without the suffering component. The good stuff we like about Jesus kind of very Jeffersonian in his Bible. Take out the stuff you don't like Thomas Jefferson took out the stuff that he didn't like and kind of created his own Bible. The fourth reason? Why? Because people think this passage is about them. We think it's about us. We interpret this passage as being about us. God will be able About us. But look at what it says. Look at verse 28. And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. His purpose. Not our purpose. His purpose. There's more. This is what he says in verse 29. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Why are we being conformed to the image of his son? Look at what he said. So that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So our suffering and our perseverance is about Jesus. It's about Jesus being glorified. And God dealing with us according to his purpose is according to his purpose. And it doesn't say we're suffering so that we're conformed to the image of the Son just so that we can go just to heaven and one day be relieved so that he would be the firstborn. So Jesus is esteemed as the first of many who will suffer because they believe and continue to do so. This is not about us and God just working it together for our good. That's true, but that's half the story. The other half is, it's his purpose. So for whatever reason that was, I kid you not, I I did not see that in the mail. I was like, man, you got to be kidding me. But somehow, I, I wasn't allowed to see it. And now I got this dilemma. Whatever you're experiencing, you got this dilemma. And you didn't even see it coming. Medical diagnosis. You just thought your back hurt. Now you find out it's a whole host of Your car wouldn't start. 
Some of you said, oh, you just get an oil change. Or you find out you need a new car. This passage is not about us and the good for us. It's about him. It's so that he, Jesus, would be seen and esteemed as the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Lastly, what makes this one of the most theological passages? Why is this one of the most theological passages in the entire Bible? This is my perspective. Other people may disagree. I do not. It's obvious, right? I wouldn't say. Let's read it for a second again. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. Now, have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered why we need to be conformed to the image of God when we were already made in his image? So in Genesis 1, 26, God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Okay, we know that sin came into the world, but every human being is made in God's image. You're still an image bearer. You didn't lose that. The only person that we know in Scripture that lost that was Nebuchadnezzar for a little while. When he was like an animal, eating grass and stuff like that. He was like a wild beast. Other than that, every human being is different from every animal. I watch a lot of Nature Channel stuff, and I love it. But the thing that animals, animals can't glorify God by reason. They don't communicate the way they, they can't worship God. They can only worship God by doing exactly what they were created to do. So a tree can worship God because it grows and if it's a fruit tree, it bears fruit. They have a purpose. But human beings are rational beings. We're like God. We, we have a sense of justice and morality and righteousness. We're different than any other part of creation. And even though sin came into the world, we never lost being made in God's image. In fact, people who are unbelievers, the reason why they should be treated with dignity and respect is because they're image bearers. These people were made in the image of God. That still exists. We have this passage of time, we need to be conformed to his image, but we were already made in it. So that happens in Genesis. And then you see, so this, this idea of bearing fruit and multiplying the earth is, is somehow change because sin comes into the world in Genesis 3 and we see this play out even further. So God decides as he looks at the world in Genesis 6, he decides, listen, humanity is only desired to do evil all the time. So he brings a flood and kills his wrath. It's the first time, the first major, major image of the wrath of God is the flood. Now, we don't know how many people were alive on the earth, but we know there was a lot. How many people died? Animals, everything. Only eight people were allowed to live out of maybe millions who were on the earth. Thousands, who know? Everyone is killed. Carnage, everything. But God wants to re sort of restore humanity. He wants to kind of conform humanity to his image again. So he says it to Noah in Genesis 9. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
The same thing he said to Adam. All right, that didn't work. He messed it up. Now it's on you. Let's do this again. And you do it. Be fruitful. Multiply the earth. The fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth. And every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and all the fish of the sea, they are placed under your authority. Every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. As I gave green plants, I've given you everything. So it's pretty much a lot of what he says to know. The same commands. Let's, let's redo this. Perform humanity to they should be like. Which is me. You made a mind. Supposed to act like me. And we know humanity doesn't do that. Humanity is about image. Tower of Babel. God said, go out. They said, let's go up. Let's build a tower. Why? So that our name can be great. Our image. So God destroyed that. It makes perfect sense why the second commandment is to not have any image. To not worship any image or to make God any image because mankind was made in his image. But it doesn't work. It's hard to conform to the image. Humanity just doesn't get it. Jesus comes. And so the God who said, do not have any image created of you, becomes an image bearer himself. So now in order to conform humanity, he becomes an image. Now people can actually see him in the flesh. Now we weren't there, obviously, but people can see him. He becomes this image bearer, and the cross is the first time you see it all come together. It all comes together at the cross. You know, there's a beautiful picture that happens in John 19 where Jesus is dead. And it says the Jews did not want the body to remain on the cross on the Sabbath. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and the other one who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs because they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once, blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified, so that you may also believe his testimony is true. And we may pass over this reality, but but it is unusual for water to come out of the human body. It's not normal. Not, now, we know that we're, we're three quarters of water or something like that. Got a little water weight myself. But when you cut me open, you're going to see blood. But the passage here is emphasizing water. Like, God wanted to be clear that both water and blood are coming out of Jesus. Because it's all coming together at the cross. But some people take this to be from Exodus 17, 6, where Moses tapped the rock and water came out. Jesus is the rock, so water comes out. Comes out. I, I, I think it's deeper than that. And I don't have time to get into all the complexities, but, but let me just say this. The flood was a judgment for sin, but it was also an attempt at conforming humanity. It was a part of, it was also salvation was indicating that. First Peter tells us this, for 
Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put, in, put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits of prison who were in the past were disobedient. When God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in it a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as a pledge of a good conscience towards God. So Peter reframed the act of judgment as also an act of salvation. So God, in the flood, Jesus, the same God who said, before Abraham was, I am, he institutes judgment on humanity through the flood, and then he institutes judgment on himself for humanity in the blood. See, the flood wasn't just about judgment, it was about salvation. But the water was insufficient to conform humanity, to restore humanity to being the proper image bearers that we should be. So I really believe this blood and water symbolizes both Jesus as the God of the flood. I mean, he instituted that. That wasn't God the Father and Jesus is God in the New Testament. Jesus institutes this blood to punish and judge humanity for their sin. The blood and the water symbolize both Jesus as the God of the flood and of the blood. The two main acts of God's wrath come together. The flood wipes out everyone on earth and the cross sheds the blood for everyone. And Christ is the centerpiece of it all. You can't be conformed to the image now without the blood. The water was done and it didn't work. So the blood comes together and the same God who instituted both of those is shedding them both for the sins of humanity. And by doing so, he becomes something different and establishes a whole new framework for what it means to be human. Leon Morris in his commentary on this passage says this, the firstborn is of course the most important of the children. He is the heir and the one singled out for special honors. But firstborn implies laterborn. The term points to others who will in due course be members of the family. Paul is saying that it was always in God's plan that there might be many in his family, children who look to Christ and I would say look like Christ, as the firstborn and rejoice that they are children of the same Father. So Christ becomes the human means in which humanity can find salvation by the cross. But not the symbol of the cross, that's a tattoo, but the suffering of the cross. That's the lifestyle. That's the groan. And that makes us family. We're not family because we go to the same church. We're family because we suffer the same thing. And we suffer for the same reason. Because we're being conformed. We're being made like Jesus. The other reason why this passage is very theological are the words that are used. When's the last time you took stock on what these words actually mean? Verse 30. Listen to what it says. When Jesus predestined it before, we'll start with verse 29. We'll start over. 
We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Five words in this passage that are significantly theological. That have significant weight to what they mean. And Paul kind of glosses over it. But I assume that he assumed the Romans, the original church, knew what these meant. To those who are called, theologically they call it effectual calling. When you are invited by God, your presence is officially requested to belong to God. It's not the gospel call, it's the acceptance of that call. Those who accepted the call, the invitation by God, is who he's talking about in the past. For those he foreknew, foreknew, you know what foreknew means? It means he knows beforehand, that he chooses beforehand, that he selects in advance. That's saying that the people who are called by God, who accept the call, he actually selected in advance to do so. Then he uses the word this, and it continues on. For those he foreknew, he also predestined. Predestined means to determine something ahead of time or before it happens. So this, so what Paul is saying is there are people who have responded to the call who God selected beforehand who he predestined them. He determined before they even existed that they would belong to him. Then he gets familiar with justified. Then those he also called, he also justified. And we know that justified means God says you are not guilty, even though you sin. There will be no punishment for your sin because I see you as righteous because you believe in me. And you know how you got that? Because I, in advance, selected you to do so. Now, there's a lot of debate about how what, what happened to Did God look into the future and know that he was going to be him, so he chose him? For it is by grace that you have been saved, and this by faith, not of your works, lest anyone should boast. This is a very weighty theological truth. Lastly, it says of those who justified. He glorified. As God positively acknowledges us, He recognizes us, and will make us glorious. Like Christ. Like John 3. When we see Him, we will be like Him. Okay. 
This is significant theology. There's a lot here that God is saying, endure. So when he says, I consider the sufferings of your present life not worth being compared to the glory, that I know and see your glory, and that I've actually put in in place in your life the specific groaning that you have so that I'm conforming you to the image of my son. Say, I decided all this before you even existed. So I was with you and for you before I created you. Before you complained about any circumstance, So you'll spend eternity with me laughing at this circumstance. Before you were disappointed by any person, I chose you for eternity to be with the with the Godhead, with Jesus, with the Father, the Spirit. Before you were ever betrayed by anyone, I chose you to belong to the one who was betrayed by all. So when it says all things work together for our good, you gotta remember how and why. Let's reinterpret this now with everything that we just heard. We know all things work together for the good. The, all things, the sufferings and groanings included, work together for the good of those who love God and who are called, who are invited according to his purpose. For those he knew before they existed, before time, he determined that they would be made like Jesus, conform to the image of his son. So that Jesus would be the firstborn of other people who would follow in his footsteps and believe in God because they believe in him. Who would choose to suffer like him, who would take up a cross and resist all the pleasures of this world because they want to follow Jesus? Who would believe, like when Jesus said to Thomas, You believe because you see, blessed are those who do not see and believe. Every prayer, every resistance. Every tear crying out to God. Every act of obedience. Every time we read because we want to know God. Every time we try to memorize and we're frustrated because we can't do it. That's all from God for us to get back to Him so that He can be with us. God uses everything that we experience in this life for our good so that it will make us similar to Jesus, make us like Jesus, because he determined before all things were even established that we would belong to him and that we would be with him in eternity forever. That's why all things work together. God.
rather than a cosmic jokester. He doesn't just do things because he can. He does things so that we will trust him. That doesn't mean you like his suffering. That doesn't mean this is going to change like your desire for it. No, nobody still won't want it. But let's remember that there's a purpose for it. To not be offended at that purpose. Or to not overlittle the scriptures and only choose a portion of it and make it about us. It's about him. It's not about our desire and our definition of good. It's about his purpose. He's invited us to be a part of his purpose. So we live, we fight, we die, and we live for him. For his glory, my good. Let's pray. Father, one of the things I love about us doing communion at the end of every every Sunday is that you bring us back by this, by taking this little wafer and drinking this juice. You bring us back to you bring us back to the place of of reality for us. It's at the cross where the blood and the water come together. The, the salvation and the, the restoration comes to a head. It's at the cross where the water that judged humanity is now contained by the very one who judged them in his body. It's his blood that was shed. It's the, the symbolic nature of both the flood and the blood coming together to finally conform humanity to your image. Who, though we were made in your image, we lost our desire to imitate you in our image bearing. What the flood couldn't do, the blood accomplished. And come together beautifully in Jesus. Lord, help us to remember the true reality of these verses. Yes, you work things together for our good. Even poor things, lost teams, broken relationships, hope deferred. Unexpected tragedies, untimely illnesses. Through all of those things, they only work together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. You've given us the answer to our suffering, even if it doesn't doesn't make us desire it. I don't think that's what you intended. I think you intended that we continue to trust you through. That the joy that we have is not the absence of suffering or struggle. Jesus was a man of sorrow. But the joy is that we know why you're doing this big picture. You're conforming us to the image of the Son. Father, I even pray that you help us to just think to ourselves, all right, Lord, I know you're conforming to your image. Help me to grow where I need to grow, baby. Help us to see that reality. Help us to celebrate the fact that 
There's nothing about us in and of ourselves that makes us worthy to It's about you and your purpose. And so in gratitude, man, we thank you. It would be impossible for you not to allow, because of who you are, it would be impossible for some justice not to take place. It would be impossible for no one's sin to be punished. Because there wouldn't be mercy. There wouldn't be grace if there wasn't wrath. Lord, help us to, to appreciate the grace that we've received so much so that we continue to grow when we need to. We suffer with the end of this year because of the greater glory that we will see. We're not the first people to have to do this. We won't be the last. So as we take communion, as those of us who profess to believe in you and actually are living to honor you, we pray that we would remember with joy in the midst of us We're called according to your purpose. And the fact that we love you is a gift that you gave to us because you love us first. So as we come forward, again, as you heard me pray, this is just act. Just for those of us who do believe in Jesus, this is this is us remembering the, the cross and dying on the cross of his blood being shed, the water coming out of his body, symbolic of the completion of salvation, completion of judgment. As the blood was the judgment on humanity, the blood is the judgment for humanity. It's completed. If you're not a believer, please don't be offended. Just pass the tray beside you. And we'd love to talk to you about what it means to be a believer. There's plenty of people here this morning. I'll be here for some time. Others will as well. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to be a believer. For those of us that are believers, let's rejoice. Let's rejoice.